0: Hello, good afternoon, and welcome to Taking Ship, a podcast about cultural politics, political culture, and why tea is best served like revenge, strong, on ice, and unsweetened. I'm Frank Spring, joined as ever by Ellie Jacobs, who has graciously agreed of his own volition and without prompting to return his extensive and elegant collection of Iraqi artifacts collected through years of painstaking research and completely legitimate exploration and recovery. Any allegations that this magnanimous gesture was occasioned by anything other than the spur of his own conscience is a dastardly lie spread by his enemies. Hi, Ellie.
1: Hey, Frank. I think the uh, Museum of Natural History should be very grateful for the large donation they're going to be getting from what's sitting around in my closet right now. As always, we'd like to thank our listeners for their comments, both positive and negative, and urge everyone to subscribe and rate us on iTunes and follow us on Twitter at @takingship taking ship and that's ship with P as in Poland. Ratings actually really do matter. So please take a few seconds, give us a few stars. As always, if you have time to tweet, you have time to write a review. So please leave us a review.
0: So, there's been a, a, f- a fair amount of chatter in the public prints uh, in the last week or so, uh, especially even in the last couple of days, including today. All of it kind of around the theme of wither the left. You know, What is to become of the, the Democratic Party? Um, you know, The city fathers uh, you know, st- you know, stroke their beards, cluck their tongues, and wonder what's to be done with this Democratic Party. Uh, over the last uh, eight years, so there's some, some context, f- context for this, it appears often, but it's worth reminding everyone of uh, the context for all this stuff. Uh, Democrats have won the presidency uh, twice and lost some uh, thousand seats uh, in uh, federal and state governments around the country. Uh, we we've essentially won uh, the presidency and lost just about everything else. Uh, when Obama first took office, uh, Democrats held 59% of the state legislatures, 29 governor's offices. Uh, those are down to 31% of state legislatures uh, and 16 governor's offices. Uh, So it is, the Democratic Party is not in a good way. Uh, And there's been a fair amount of uh, discussion uh, in in various publications over the last couple of weeks about what's, what are we to do about this? And so we thought we would uh, take this episode and really kind of dive into a little bit of that. Uh, And the first one, uh, that we want to talk about here is a is a, to give you a sense of what is actually what what is happening what the party itself is trying to do the party leadership trying to do to pull this together uh, there's a there's a piece about latest attempt by democratic leadership to brand or to message or to give some kind of guidance to the to the what the party is saying heading into
1: 2018 yeah I mean uh, saying that the party leadership is trying to figure out what's going on is being remarkably generous. Uh, one of the things that's very interesting from the uh, political article that came out uh, and we'll, we'll post it on the Twitter feed, obviously, and the Hill article and a lot of the stuff going on on Twitter at this point is that no pollster or democratic communication strategist of, or anything like that has come forward and said, yeah, this was my idea. To give you an idea of some of the slogans that they're working on, Democrats 2018. I mean, have you seen the other guys?
0: Yeah, this is a real This is a real thing. of this is a real piece of merchandise that uh, that came out of the D triple C And I you know, I've I have I've said things defending the D trip on this podcast I will say more things defending the D trip because I think they're they have uh, I think their role in politics is little understood and and they're actually it's much harder than most people make it out to be uh, I am Really struggling to come up with anything good to say about this one this is this is extremely poor
1: yeah they put up a poll uh, asking people to vote which one should we print and these are the options resist and persist she persisted we resisted the aforementioned Democrats 2018 I mean have you seen the other guys make Congress blue again these were actual things that somebody decided were a good idea uh, okay. and the NRCC to their their credit, for, for certain, uh, mocked up a, a, an imitation, it was Democrats 2018. We win moral victories, not elections. Yeah. Which is
0: pretty on target. Yeah, it is pretty on target. And like this, this, I mean, and look, parties and party up committees say they, 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 put up absurd stuff, uh, reductive stuff, absurd stuff for the consumption of their base. Especially in off years, that happens all the time. It's perfectly fine, but this, but occasionally you put up something that is so bad that people that genuinely, light, yeah, it should people. never be, yeah, it should never go out at any time, right? It should never have been. It should never have seen the light of day, and particularly one that is so bad because it is so close. It is so close to the bone of what the Democratic Party actually is, you know, appears to stand for right now, which is uh, we don't know what we are, but the other guys are pretty bad, right,
1: and it'll be interesting. I, you you should spend a little time talking about what the D trip should be doing. Um, but in you know, I'll just say a couple things. I mean, coming from kind of some of the corporate work that I do, this is sort of the classic corporate thinking. In lieu of a strategy or inventing a new thing, you just repackage the same old shit. Uh, you know, Microsoft uh, is sort of the, they're there's sort of the the outlier of the way this usually works in corporate world usually if you just remarketing the same thing you're not going to do particularly well Microsoft essentially created Windows and Microsoft Office had and have made small tweaks over the last 20 or 30 years to it every year so that you have to buy the new thing but the thing itself hasn't changed Microsoft is essentially a marketing company not a software company but that's sort of off the off the off the uh, the road of what we're trying to talk about here
0: I don't I don't I don't know that the that it's that far off the road. I mean there is a parallel but just, so basically if you, if you're suggesting that the Democrats in 2018 are shaping up to have a remarkable similarity to like Windows 10
1: yeah that's uh, on target.
0: There is, there, yeah sure. but you know, you're you're not off like we're, you know we're just endlessly reissuing essentially the same product. With a slightly fresh coat of paint, which you have to use, which because is, your yeah. system only takes the Democratic Party. You did a job. Listen, you did a job lot buy back in the day. You use it as your fundamental infrastructure for everything. And even though the and even and even though the software itself is possibly degrading past use, uh, we you still have to use it because what else are you going to do?
1: And the best. Part I mean, have you seen is, the other guys? If everything goes tits up, you end up with a blue screen.
0: Yeah, that's that's exactly the worst comes to worst. Is it's gonna be blue screens everywhere? Oh man, I'm telling you, this I is mean, this, th- this is th- it. Democrats 2018, blue screens everywhere. We're gonna run on that and wonder why we've uh, why we've lost the tech side. I about. mean,
1: this is like fucking new Coke. Uh, you know, in the 80s, Coca-Cola decided they were gonna create a new Coke. A new they were gonna improve their recipe that had been around for a hundred years after they had tweaked it once when they Auto, stopped if using it ain't
0: broke. Coke. Fix it. I mean, if it, if it ain't broke, just maul it horribly and replace it with something else. All right.
1: So, you know, Coca-Cola came out. The reason it's called Coke is because there was cocaine in it, you know, small amounts of it, which is sort of where the upper came from, the same way that 7-Up had lithium in it. That's where people got their happy joy from the 7-Up and Dr. Pepper was prune juice and people were happy about drinking prune juice because it helped their regularity. <laughs> and who, who among us is not happy if you're not regular?
0: That is the most Texas thing in the entire world, because Dr. Pepper famously is from the great state of Texas. Now I love that. Like, it's competition. Like you could get uh, coked up to the gills on you know on you know on one of these cola products. Uh, the other one will give you you know a will give you a comparatively powerful antidepressant, whereas you know the one from the great state of Texas. <laughs> nah, man, we'll just keep you regular, just good old fashioned Britain <laughs> juice.
1: Oh, I and mean, you're that much barbecue. Yeah, that's, I mean, no, that's but, right. But uh, New Coke, I, I mean, ironically, what uh, else, yeah. it gets a kind of ironic here. Uh, uh, Sawyer Miller, which was one of the first uh, consultancies that started in politics and switched over to the to the corporate world. Uh, they were sort of charged with this whole new process. And they came out with this great branding idea and everything like that. And then New Coke was fine in the release. And they had these amazing commercials and advertising and all this other sorts of stuff. And the product just sucked. And this is sort of where the concept of branding and marketing falls to pieces if the baseline product sucks it doesn't matter how you dress it up and to quote our good friend sarah Palin friend of the pod it's you know lipstick on a pig and that's essentially where we're at with some of the stuff that's happening with with that the Democrats are rolling out this way it's all crap and they've done nothing to actually fix any of the internal or external problems to make themselves in a better position but before we move on, Frank, maybe it would be helpful if you kind of explain your perspective of what the DTRIP should be doing, because they should certainly not be doing this sort of branding and marketing.
0: Sure. The job of a, I mean, and there is a, a, a legitimate question, and I, I think if you've got anyone over there, they would tell you this. There's a, I mean, a real question about what the, what the functional purpose of the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee is. Uh, and, and the, the big answer is to elect Congre- Democratic congressional candidates, right? Like that's the big mission, but that's like saying an army's purpose is to win a war. That is true. A military's purpose is to win a war. That is true. But there are, there's a lot of different ways you can set about doing a thing like that. There are three primary committees that handle democratic politics. And there's, there are actually four, there are three big ones, three national ones, the democratic national committee, the DNC. Uh, the Democratic Senate Campaign Committee, the DSCC, and the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, the DCCC. There's also the DLCC, the Democratic Legislative Campaign Committee, which handles uh, state level, uh, which house uh, state legislatures. Uh, and there's also the DGA, the Democratic Governors Association, which handles um, which handles gubernatorial races, obviously. But there's sort of three big national ones that we're talking about: the DNC, the DCCC, and the DSCC. The DTRIP... It's in the past, it is a much maligned in occasionally a much maligned organization because its decisions on how it on how it supports candidates, how it chooses to apportion its resources, how it relates to its candidates uh, have been been very,
1: very importantly, also how they choose their candidates.
0: How They choose their candidates uh, has been has been opaque. And this this incidentally, you brought up something that I think is a really excellent point. This is a common mistake about. This is actually one of the great misconceptions about all three of these entities, uh, the DNC, the D trip, and the and the DSCC, especially the DTRIP. trip. Uh, there is a there is a question like you know there'll, there'll be a there'll be a race where uh, a party won't put up where the party won't put up a good candidate for Congress. I'm like, why can't the Democrats pick a you know why didn't the Democrats run someone better or. Why didn't the Why did the Democrats allow this person to win and not the other person and so forth? The party itself, actually, there are things it can do. It can identify candidates that it would like to run and encourage them to run. It can make some resources available to some candidates early in the race. It's only been fairly recently that the DCCC has actually started to uh, make resources available to candidates who have active primaries. It used to be they stayed out of the primary process and just accepted who they got. And the idea, and and that was a legitimate strategic decision in the sense that it was like, we are, you know, our, we are here to elect Democratic candidates. We are here to run against Republicans. We're not here to run against our own party. Uh, that changed when they begin, that has changed over the last few years as they began to take a view that if you have what looks like a better candidate uh, and for the general and you've got one in the primary, you should support that, you should support that candidate and see off uh, potentially less credible general election candidates and give you a better shot of winning down the line.
1: How did that change with with, uh, Rahm Emanuel when he ran the D trip. It seems like that was sort of like the, the, like the, the C splitting aspect where he, it went from sort of one way to another way post Rom.
0: Yeah. So actually Rahm, if memory serves, was not the one who actually started the D trip running it started the D trip getting involved in primaries that actually postdates Rom. Rahm. Uh, but Rahm was, I mean, he was sort of, he, he was known particularly for, uh, ruthlessly enforcing, uh, very high expectations of, uh, for fundraising and for a degree of professionalism from candidates that were running in, t- in 2006, you had to be able to raise money. You had to be, and that, that was a, that was a really big thing because the idea was the D trip. It's a national committee. It raises a huge amount of money. It spends a huge amount of money. It can make very substantial commitments. It can give a lot of money to congressional candidates. It can spend a lot of money on their behalf. But the idea was we are not going to do any of that or as much of that unless you show that you are able to raise money and sustain yourselves. And that has continued to be a strategically controversial decision in some quarters of the Democratic Party because you get, you know, the idea is you've got candidates who are otherwise very good candidates. They may have good, you know, they may have good bios. They may have good um, relations in their communities and so forth. Uh, and just because they can't raise money, the d Triple won't support them. That money thing has been a real sticking point uh, for the D trip and its role between the kind of activist side of the party and potential candidates of the D trip itself. Uh, the counter argument to that, to take Rum's side for the time being is, you know, the D trip, if, especially if you're looking at a big election where in 2006, you know, the map was like 55, 60 seats that they might've wanted to invest in, invest in because it looked like a, it was, it looked like a coming congressional tidal wave. And it was, uh, and 2018 is the same way. The D trips map, of, you know, seats that they're targeting could be, you know, you could be talking about 50, you could be talking about more, uh, there a lot 79, seat, recently. 79, they're, I mean, exactly. You're talking, I mean, I'm, I'm setting expectations to sort of lower because that will eventually winnow, da- winnow down, but sure I mean, you could be looking at, you know, between 50 and a hundred seats, you know, as compared to a, you know, a, a you know, a standard uh, list of target seats, defend, you know, defend and pick up which could be, you know, 35, 40 at the tops, sometimes less than sometimes fewer than that. Right. Um, there's not a whole lot of seats that are likely to change in a given election historically. So, if you have a map that large and your resources are going to be spread, and you want to be able to spread your resources effectively over that wide a space, then your candidates need to be able to pick up their pick up their slack. And here's the other point about candidate based fundraising. And this we've gotten a little bit off what the purpose of the D trip is, but I want to stay with this for one more second. Candidate based fundraising is illustrative because it dis- it shows you the extent to which your candidate is able to make a persuasive narrative case for their own candidacy and discipline himself or herself to do the hard work of fundraising. In that sense, like no, of course, no candidate likes being stuck doing fundraising. Uh, no campaign manager loves having their candidate fundraise when they could be doing other things that are related to when they could be, you know, speaking to, speaking to a persuadable audience, potentially persuading actual voters. But the the machine has to the machine needs money. That's this is where we are right now. Until we get campaign finance reform, and which is something I am entirely for, uh, campaigns are only getting more expensive. And a candidate who is capable of disciplining himself or herself to do the hard and grim work of fundraising and make that narrative push is generally speaking, and in, it's an indication that they can do other things. They can make a persuasive case on the stump. They can make a persuasive case uh, in you know out in person, and they can they can prep for and execute their debate prep well. It's not always the case, but those two things tend to be related. Candidates who just cannot and will not fundraise, it's not clear what else they cannot or will not do that is essential to victory. Right. So enough on candidate fundraising. You know, the DTRIB's essential job has been to identify, to recruit, it does have a very heavy recruitment role, to identify and to recruit potential candidates, to provide them early support and strategic guidance, uh, and then to uh, be a certain amount of training, which is something they have reinvested in the cycle that I think is really encouraging, uh, that had that had got kind of gone to the back burner for a while. Uh, so there's been more training. And then to raise from a national s- – raise to a central committee, the DCCC, uh, and spend outward. So the money comes in from uh, throughout from small donors and larger donors throughout the country, comes into the DCCC, and then is spent on their target seats throughout the country. And that could be spent in any number of ways. It can be a direct gift uh or the other way is usually through digital or television buys. Those are the primary ways, although certainly not the exclusive ways that the D, D- Trip has spent money. This year, the D Trip has done some other stuff. They've hired organizers in uh constituencies where even where we don't have a where we didn't even have a congressional candidate yet. Um they hire, you know, pre-primary, they've hired uh organizers to do the hard work of organizing and building volunteer lists. Uh, building some degree of infrastructure in various Texas in various Texas um, uh, constituencies. Uh, they hired organizers early in the Georgia sixth, for example, uh, to do voter registration. All of that kind of stuff. Well, it's really party building. All of that is uh, all of you know all of that stuff is really the the job of a central party that really should belong to the DNC. But for reasons that we can get into in a much longer epic. Uh, the DNC essentially withered in, eight, in during the eight years of the Obama presidency, and some of that I think is honestly can be laid at the feet of uh, President Obama himself. And as a result, I don't have uh, to detri-
1: apologize for that. I think it can be directly laid at his feet.
0: Sure. Yeah. I mean, it was the it was a series of decisions that um, that he and others, but particularly, that he ultimately has to own that caused the DNC to wither on the vine. Uh, And as a result, it's not doing a couple of the things that it needs to do. Uh, one of them is uh, enforcing party building, and that's usually done by the the DNC giving money to state parties and to hire organizers, and then checking the progress of those organizers versus their agreed goals, right? Like that requires a fairly robust DNC. Um, There hasn't hasn't been that. Uh, The essential purpose of a DNC, ultimately any party has two very vital functions. Uh, first, it has, to, it has to keep and maintain an accurate voter file. Uh, so this is like you keep the da- – you aggregate all of the data from everyone who has run uh, that you can get access to. And you make sure that anyone who is running for – demo- running as a Democrat for office has access to a voter file and ideally more data on the voters than just the voter file. Uh, but certainly not keep an accurate voter file that everyone can have access to that they can use to contact voters, right? That's the essential thing. And the other thing is they have to have a clean bank account that you can raise money into and spend money out of. The DNC basically has done that, although there are some real questions about the quality of their data. There is, and, and by real questions, I say not to doubt the quality of the DNC's data heading into 2016. But just that has become a bit of a sticking point, a bit of a point of a firefight, actually, between the Hillary Clinton campaign and the DNC data staff each of whom is sort of accusing the other of having rubbish data. Um, So anyway, the but the other thing that the DNC, when we, when there is a president in power of a party or when there is a presidential candidate, that pres, the president sets is the, is by is de facto, the party leader. And the president sets the kind of messaging and the broader sense of what the party should be talking about, right? Like this is who we are as a party. This is the narrative of the country that we're going to ask voters to sign up for when they vote for us. When there is no president of a sitting party, and when there is no, uh, or and this is also true when it's the last two years of a sitting president's term, but when there is no president of a sitting party and there is no clear presidential candidate yet, the party is effectively without a leader. At moments like that, in theory, it should be the DNC's job to know kind of this to be the keepers of this is our continuing democratic narrative. This is the democratic narrative that we that we recommend that we are going to use. Uh, in the in you know in the intervening period, so this is what it means to be a Democrat now. This is what we're going to ask you know the DSCC and the DCCC and the DJ and the DLCC and everyone else to kind of sign up to and to use, but that isn't there. And as a result, the DTRIP and the DS, but it, I mean, both of them collectively are sort of having to do their own branding out of the legislative offices. And this is how you get organizations like uh, you know that are that are set up between the Democratic leadership in the Senate, and the Democratic leadership in the House that are actually sort of defining the branding and messaging for the Democratic Party heading into 2018 that's a one cycle brand a one cycle message that is divorced from where we were in 2016 which in this case is probably a very good thing but also divorced from where we're likely to be in 2020 it's a it is a it is a very short term thing and you know as you will know from your own experience that has the makings of a real communications problem the D trip wasn't desi- and the D trip wasn't designed should never be asked to set the branding tone for the entire party. It's just not what it's there for.
1: Right. And I'd argue that between uh, Obama 08, which message was hope and change. So essentially it's optimism and we're going to be different than George W. Bush or potentially everybody before us because we're the the first African-American elected, et cetera, et cetera. And then the 2012 campaign, which was essentially Osama bin Laden is dead and General Motors is alive and give us some more time. We're going to make this okay. Uh, never really came up with that overarching strategy of what the party represented. And Hillary Clinton certainly didn't during her campaign party really hasn't had a message since I would argue 96, maybe Kerry came up with something in 04, but not really. He was still just running as not George W. Bush.
0: Sure. 2000, 2008 was, was distinct because I mean, it was distinct for all sorts of reasons, but I, I would say that that was, and, and it's understandable, right? Like the first, if you have a, an incredibly capable, uh, and, he, and he certainly was that, an incredibly capable candidate running for president. And, and that, that a phenomenal story and a phenomenal yeah, and that, that specimen of cool. what a
1: candidate can be. I mean, again, exactly. isn't is, it, it's a yeah. wholly unique situation that we will never see again.
0: Yeah, a candidate writing a perfect, like a great personal narrative, and who understands, was able to connect his narrative authentically to the narrative of the country. Again, presidential elections, especially any election, but especially presidential elections, any federal election, I should say, but especially a presidential election is about, it is a choice of competing narratives. This is the story of America that I want you to sign up to. And by voting for me, I want you to be the hero of it, right? That's the pitch you're making to voters. and. Obama was able to do that and he was able to do it because of his own narrative and because of the way that he talked about this there was hope and change which was you know I mean it's and and again like he had the wind at his back because 8 years of the Bush administration had just absolutely gutted the Republican party's popularity and also he was able to make a a, a very unifying pitch we are going to bring the country together out you know out of many we are one while we breathe we hope right that he was able to kind of take a an increasingly diversifying a diverse country and create a narrative of unity out of it you know it would you know the skinny kid with a funny name who knew that that america had a place for him too this is all really powerful stuff that he was able to do and and unfortunately one of the reasons that that began to fracture is it's very hard to sell that unity narrative if you're the only one who's interested in it and your enemies have no desire to be part of it at all No. and that, that, right, that and that's and particularly difficult to- us politically Right,
1: and it's particularly difficult to do when its entire when its entire basis is based on a single
0: individual. Sure, that's exactly right, and 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 unfortunately, and that was really it. When you have a party that is working in lockstep with the or that is that is there to take that individual's broader narrative appeal and push it down at the local level, so you have some degree of resonance between the leader of the party. And the foot soldiers of the party, and at every level in between, uh, then you have the makings of potentially a very long time in government. Uh, what happens when you have one incredibly gifted and 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 charismatic individual with a great narrative, with a you know a, a genuinely very very good political athlete at the top of the ticket, and no nothing. Nothing beneath that, nothing to create or build the party below is exactly what you'd expect. That one person continues to win elections and everything else withers, which is exactly what we've seen.
1: Right. I mean, there's an argument to be made and there's some interesting uh, statistics around this, that this whole concept of messaging or branding, whatever it is, is really only in the margins, that in general people are just going to go straight back to the party that they generally identify with the trouble Mm -hmm. is, is now within essentially a 49, 49 country. And those 2% that are up for grabs messaging and branding becomes a really big, important aspect of it to a degree that it hasn't been probably ever before. Sure. That 2% is the only part that's up for grabbing is going to be the difference between winning and losing. Mm -hmm. And that's the only aspect that's going to get hit by this kind of concept of branding and messaging. But again, going back to sort of where this comes from, if you look at the corporate situation, if you look at, um, You know, one of my favorite examples of of always because they're just such a smart corporation, uh, and you know, being a shareholder, I'm very happy about that. uh, Is Nike? Nike made sneakers for years before they came out with the "Just Do It" slogan, and then "Just Do It" sort of, kind of, it 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 was self-explanatory. It's Just Do It. Just go do whatever the hell you want to do as long as you're wearing our shoes. Our shoes are going to make you better at it. And yeah, the, the Democrats yeah, don't the, have the Democrats don't have the base thing of what you're going to go do. They're just saying, hey, get us. We're going to help you. Help us with what?
0: Yeah, well, it's not even it's not even that. I mean, if we were saying, get it, you know, you know, vote for us because we're going to help you, that'd be one thing. But right now it's, you know, vote for us because if I mean, they're the other guys. Yeah, we're not the other guy. And and you can see how tempting that is because the other guy, you know, right now is this, uh, you know, from both a polling and an almost literal perspective is this sort of ghoulish, you know, monstrosity. Uh, so you could see how seductive that is, right? We don't have to do the hard, grim work of trying to keep this coalition together and figure out, you know, still, you know, I mean, it's still fairly divided uh, left in the sense of, yeah, you know, there's still you know pretty much daily firefights, and you know on you know on, you know online, of course there are daily firefights online about everything, but you know there's still, you know the the fight between apparently uh, there was Bernie one yesterday Hillary. about
1: Khloe Kardashian and Rob Kardashian, two people I didn't know existed. There was some big firefight about the two of them.
0: Yes, that's exactly right. Yeah, I, I shouldn't have said – because I shouldn't have used the fact that there was a firefight online to demonstrate anything because, I mean, you know, if the, if the great hot dog and sandwich debate taught us anything, it's that, you know, we will balkanize and kill each other over anything there is to balkanize and kill each other over. ESPN's embrace debate ethos has come to dominate the American culture. All is lost. Uh, this, has been, this has been taking ship. Thank you for listening. Now, to get back to the matter at hand, uh, yeah, it's – you know, there is, the party is still – pretty shot up. Uh, we're still, there's, there's still a lot of bitterness between the Hillary's folks, the Bernie folks, and everyone else who is trying to kind of figure out where we, co- where we come to out of this. You could see why it would be tempting looking at how poorly the president and the president's party are failing are faring right now in polling terms to just say, we're just going to ride their unpopularity all the way back into power. The problem is that is a continuation of the same thesis that the Clinton campaign used to attempt to win the election.
1: Right, which is also based on sort of what the uh, Democratic stri- 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 strategy, to quote Will Ferrell, uh, mm-hmm. in twenty ten and then twenty twelve was: we're just going to ride Obama's popularity's coattails.
0: Sure. Yeah, and it's and again, it's the, this cult, is
1: cult of personality does not work in a Democratic.
0: Yeah, you can term. win. You can win presidency. You can win presidencies on it. You can, but you can't keep them. And this right. is the real challenge. Like you've got to have a party behind that. And, and some of this is is simply technocratic stuff, which we' I talked I went, you know I talked about some of the D trip. we can talk we'll talk more about how the various technical sides of the party are supposed to work. But you know, to a certain degree, you have to know what is your narrative, What is your story? How does this party fit into that story? What are we talking about? And some of that is around policy terms because that story is illustrated by policy. It's not made up of policy, but it's illustrated by policy. And you have to know what, you know, what position you take on one policy informs the story that you're taking. What kind of a country is this and what kind of country do we want to be? And also because you're you're constantly rewriting our own history, what kind of a country have we been and how does that inform where we're going? Right. Uh, and and, and we're, having, and so, having you know, two that,
1: AARP members and Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer from up from the coasts, quite literally, you could not get further onto the coasts than either of them are from being the people who are rolling this out. Is also baffling. Like I, I would think that every and anything that the Democratic Party tries to roll out, should it should have to go through some sort of smell test by John Tester and Sherry Bustos.
0: Yeah, I mean, at the very least. Yeah, you know, yeah, the idea that there is yeah that that we have become yeah that and, and and we we saw this a little bit in some of the coverage of you know, the emerging democratic party platform and messaging that we're putting out that, you know, tester and Bustos have both been public on the idea that they're basically going to do what they're going to do, especially tester. Um, that they're, you know, facing his own reelection in a state that went for uh, Donald Trump by just about everything. Uh, you know, they're going to do their own thing. And and the thing is the democratic party, both parties have left plenty have usually left room for, uh, people to be their own candidates dealing with their local constituencies. Right. It's, You know, the idea that we are sort of pushing it, everyone has to, that there is a war between every candidate runs their own campaign and their own, you know, their own message versus uh, you know, there is a single unifying message that we all have to sign on for in order to be Democrats. That that's a fault that that is just a false narrative. We've well, always um, been able to have differences and sort of frame things locally, but
1: I'd, I'd argue this is that, that local
0: that, framing in the absence of a kind of national message, which I'd is, which, argue which makes that, us that, but,
1: Right. I'd argue that the concept of the national message becomes more important with the nationalization of media.
0: Mm hmm. That's true. That's between, exactly
1: between, you know, social media and the internet, so you know, anybody anywhere can read the New York Times. You know, no one in Bozeman, Montana was reading the New York Times until, you know, twenty years ago, twenty-five years ago, whatever it might be. But suddenly that everything has become national is why that sort of bigger concept idea come like is so important. But smart politicians like John Tester and Heidi Heidkamp and John Joe Manchin and, and Sherry Bustos in Illinois They're going to do what needs to be done for their district and we talked a little bit about this um, was two weeks ago uh, when we were talking about john ossoff's loss and how he didn't really have a message and he didn't really represent the district that he was running in at all and this is one of the points that a lot of democrats again not to bring up rom again but considering he's the only one who has a win record at this point running the d trip maybe we should be listening to him a little bit more is the idea of matching smart politicians who can raise money and stick to message and do the hard work and know their districts can run a proper local election to an extent that if it's just being dictated from up on high on, you know, K Street or whatever, wherever it is, where, where, where are they? They're on D Street, whatever it is, um, isn't going to work.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think there's the extent to which we've we've gotten away from the you know so-called ROM, like the, you know for better or for worse we call the rom model of you know having you know good quality fine candidates who do, um you know who you know who can raise and and you know stay and have some extra discipline and so forth. It's it's a little overblown. I think that that's that's kind. It's pretty much been the model since. And and rom didn't really introduce that. He just enforced it with a And this is really the point. He just enforced it brutally. <laughs> Uh, and, and he did it in the, he did it while riding a wave. Um, and I think that that's, we, we may be seeing that now a little bit more, but also to a certain degree, I mean, the D trip has an embarrassment of riches now in the sense that, you know, they've got, you know, people stacking up good, you know, good, quality use that term advisedly, but certainly viable to good candidates stacking up in districts where they haven't been able to find anyone to run before. Um, uh, and, and it's sort of, you know, and why people didn't run, I think Within the Democratic Party, and, and I have no science to back this up whatsoever, uh, so it, it's pretty much like everything else I've ever said on this podcast. Uh, it, if we had science it, no to back science to, up
1: any of the things that we said, have
0: no we science would to back no this podcast. up whatsoever. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, I mean, I suspect that part of what we have seen, you know, that there haven't been, so, you know, the reason there are more congressional candidates and Democratic congressional candidates now and better ones is that to a certain degree they've been highly galvanized by the Trump victory, right? Uh, to a certain degree, uh, they may have, there, there may be a clarity about the low barrier to entry in politics. Uh, That Donald Trump's victory has, uh, you know, I hope put to bed the idea that anyone is not qualified to potentially run for office. If you have a if you are a a capable person um, with a good story to tell uh, and can connect that narrative to your to your community and are able to to, you know, to do that with passion and authenticity, you are more qualified for office than the president of the United States. And be able to, you know,
1: do the job. Uh,
0: And be able to do the job, certainly. Um, That's really let us not forget that. Uh, But also, I think there was a tendency on the part of the Democratic Party to sit, to sort of assume that it was being handled, right. It being the future of the country that, you know, that, the you know, Obama had it in hand that it was going to be okay, that Hillary was going to win. They're going to be four to eight more years that it was kind of the end of history. And, you know, like the, like the kind of liberal side of the kind of neoliberal centrist consensus was going to be the thing for, uh, 18 to you know for you know for excuse me for for 16 years and possibly longer and as a result we could kind of go on about our lives and that just all that that fantasy which i don't think really did any of us especially any credit uh was just utterly shattered in november and now people are, are galvanized and that's incredibly heartening
1: Right. I mean, I think, you know, for starters, some of this idea that it was going to be a Democratic majority for forever, which was something that the Republican Party was also seeing was based on the numbers, which was based on demographics, which was based on some of the identity politics, which we'll get to in a second. Um, But the second point that you just made in terms of uh, there are a lot of good D-trip candidates that are coming up in districts that you wouldn't have necessarily thought would be up for grabs. was there's 23 districts uh, where Hillary won, uh, but there's a GOP representative in Congress right now.
0: I yeah, that's correct. So that's, yeah, exactly. So those are that's. I mean, that's obvious. Those are no-brainers. Yeah, that's where your targeting starts, but it's damn sure not where it ends.
1: Right, but you know, there was an interesting piece in the Wall Street Journal this morning. Uh, Frank and I had talked about this uh, offline a little bit that the D that the uh, Republican senatorial campaign Com- committee has been having a lot of trouble recruiting senators for the uh, what it, nine seats that are yeah. uh, democratically held that Republicans uh, that that Trump won the, uh, Democrats. Hold the seat. Trump won the state.
0: Yeah, there are a bunch of all basically the, the there was a fear. That's exactly right. The 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 uh, the NRSC, the Na- the uh, National Republican Senate Committee has been struggling to recruit Senate candidates like their top tier congressional congressmen that they wanted to run for uh, you know for this state for you know it's for Missouri especially that was a big one where they had a they had a congresswoman they wanted to run there they felt like gave them a shot to pick up Missouri she declined. Now, that's happened in a couple of other places. They're really struggling to find people to do these pickups. The 2012 intake, uh, you know, so all of the – all these senators that won in purple-ish states, Democratic senators that won in purple states during Obama's reelect, were seen as being really vulnerable. And and that, that sense of vulnerability is already beginning to deteriorate a little bit. I mean, who knows what's going to happen? But, you know, at some level, if I were a Republican, I, you know, I would look at this and say – you know, and think – you know, why would I, why would I, you know, who would run for Senate right now with the principle being, uh, you are going to carry the flag of Donald Trump farther than it has already been carried. Uh, and you know, you're going to continue this legislative agenda, uh, to the, you're going to continue this legislative agenda that, uh, you know, essentially we, you know, we tried, we tried to take people's health care away and we failed, at least we hope that continues. We tried to take your health care away and we failed. So vote for me and we'll try it again. And this time we'll succeed. That's just not, a. I mean, that's that's a suicide mission
1: right so to kind of wrap up this section basically the democrats attempt at branding and messaging with some of this bullshit that was released that honestly uh, smart people that i know thought it was an onion article that's how bad this stuff was Uh, to wrap it up is essentially what went from in position where democrats should be very worried about sort of holding on to the three senate seats that are really in red states and that's montana Uh, uh, North Dakota and West Virginia. Now it looks like they'll have a good chance of keeping all of them and and Frank and I have talked about this before. He's more optimistic on Democrats taking the House than I am, but there's the possibility that it could happen. Nonetheless, the Democrats are now facing a situation where there is a president who's currently at 35 to 37 percent approval. He has no legislative Uh, positions to campaign on or for any of the congressmen or senators or wannabe senators they're going to be able to campaign on. And yet the Democrats are finding new and interesting and inventive ways to shoot themselves in the dick.
0: Well, I mean, it is the I mean, it is a fine tradition within this party.
1: But moving on, we can continue bitching and moaning about the Democratic Party. What's, (laughs) What's next on our hit list?
0: Uh it was an interesting piece, uh, and I use the term interesting advisedly, uh, from uh, our old buddy Mark Penn, uh, former pollster to uh, Hillary Clinton. Uh, and Bill and, Clinton. And Bill Clinton. That's that is true. Uh also uh also and also uh Andrew Stein uh both appeared in the New York Times in a joint piece uh urging the Democratic Party to return to uh, centrist politics. It's in some respects an unremarkable piece of work, uh, and there, there are a number of – this is one of a number of, of pieces that have come out recently kind of around the broader theme of the Democrats need to return to the center. It's been a lot of talk about returning to the center. And as you know, uh, listeners of this podcast will know that Ellie and I are ever watchful, ever vigilant uh, for the, uh, the rise of the alt center. Uh, so we are naturally, particularly, we naturally tend to look on, uh, you know, c- you know, er, uh, cries for centrism with a somewhat jaundiced eye. But there, uh, but this again, actually,
1: th- there's the utter importance of differentiating between centrism and alt-centrism.
0: And alt-centrism—that's exactly right. It's, 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 which is as important as the distinction between the right and the alt-right, and between sure. the left and the alt-left. Right? Like Absolutely. these are all. I mean, these, these are. This is a critical. This is of critical importance. And what Penn is putting up here, I mean, I, I have some objections to the piece. Um, I have some objections to some of the way that the broader push towards centrism is being articulated, but it's actually pretty unremarkable. Uh, What has been remarkable is the disdain with which it's been greeted simply because it was penned by, by Mark Penn. Um, That it's sort of an interesting case of how like the messenger can be, and again, there's, there, there's not to say there's nothing objectionable in this. There's some stuff that I have some real questions about, but it's a good example of how that particular individual has become uh, so toxic within the democratic party that he honestly could have pulled all of the questionable stuff out of this written a straight down, milquetoast straight down the middle of the road, you know, uh, peon to centerism and still, uh, you know, this would have been looked at by minds on both both the left and the right uh, as, you know, an attempt to, you know, insert poison back into the democratic party.
1: Right. Um, Our our friends of the pod over at pod save America. And they are friends uh, as the way that Frank describes our friends that they don't know that we exist. um, They went ballistic over this piece uh, Favreau and, and Viator and, uh, what's the other one's name? Love it. They went, and, and Pfeiffer, they all went ballistic over this piece and reading the piece. If you didn't read the byline, David Axelrod could have written the exact same piece ideologically. I mean, again, Axelrod worked on the 96 Clinton reelect and he worked, you know, he worked on democratic politics through that whole period where this was essentially the message. And again, this is the important part. Contra to what we were just talking about, at least when the Democrats were running sort of this centrist philosophy, there was an overarching message of it and the disdain for Mark Penn that has grown from parts of the, you know, let's call it from the four to 45 degrees and left aspects of the democratic party, just because of his, I mean, we can be honest about it, his, uh, um, ignorant, toxic, um, irresponsible and overall dumb conduct during the 2008 primaries in terms of how he wanted to take on Barack Obama and how he was running Hillary's campaign. Uh, There's more than enough reason to disdain a strategist for those actions. But this piece in particular is not stupid and it's really not off the rails. Again, as Frank said, there are things that we could pick and, and say that we don't necessarily agree with them. But overall, as I said, David Axelrod, David Pluff, Joel Benson, yeah. any of them could have written this.
0: Yeah, it's not far off the mainstream of the Democratic Party. And it's hard to read this without thinking that it's – an. Ob- I mean, it's it obviously is a response to Bernie Sanders' piece – uh, from a little less than a month ago, in which he in which you know he wrote a piece about how Democrats can stop losing elections that called for a, a bolder, more leftist approach as you would expect it to.
1: Throughout uh, which he referred to himself as a we, as a Democrat, and again, as Frank and I point out on an every on a biweekly basis, I believe at this point, Bernie Sanders is still not a member of the Democratic Party. Sure.
0: So there is a so you know we talked about this the you know this left versus the left versus the center thing is still being played out. Uh, it is, uh, you know, I think again, may make it a little more understandable why faced with the choice of trying to figure out how to referee this thing. Uh, the leadership of the, you know, the DSCC and the DLCC might be inclined to go toward a, might, might be inclined to just run against, uh, Trump and how, uh, and how vile that is. Um, so, you know, I think, uh, you know, there's another piece that is relevant to this that, I, that we just want to touch on very quickly, which is, uh, uh Ronald uh Ron Klein uh who is uh, an Obama administration staffer is a democratic strategist of some standing uh wrote a piece also quite recently this one in the Washington Post
1: he was a Goran and Clinton staffer before that He was a
0: Gore, exactly yes uh is this I mean the sort of thesis of which he wasn't calling for a set of policies, particularly, although what he was calling for is not substantial. Although when he did, it's not substantially different from a kind of the centrist stuff that Penn, Penn and others are calling for. Uh, but his piece is, you know, in order to win back the white working class, uh, we need to, you know, give them some straight talk about what the Democratic Party stands for. So it was a more of a kind of messaging thing specifically designed toward specifically designed to speak to the white working class. Uh, this, again, touched off a reaction uh, in certain quarters of the Democratic Party. Uh, who are suspicious of, uh, of the Democratic Party focusing any effort on the white working class. I would like to remind everyone, as we often do when this comes up, white working class is not an economic distinction. White working class is a cultural modifier. And to be a member of the white working class, to the extent that it predicts or correlates with your voting behavior, and those are not the same thing, but to the extent that it either predicts and or correlates with your voter, with your voting behavior, uh, it is – you do not necessarily even have to have a working-class job to be part of it. Uh, but it, – and it, and it also is now a kind of shorthand for uh, the communities that live in uh, you know, depopulating mid-sized, mid-sized and small cities in the Great Lakes region that have been historically primarily white and historically primarily manufacturing. The idea of spending some t- degree—and we've talked about there being, and I want to remind everyone of this as well, that there is a false distinction right now afoot. Uh, and if there's anything that we like to hunt down around here, it's false choices and false distinctions. There is a false choice afoot. Especially when
1: they are afoot.
0: Afoot, yes. They're afoot. They're abroad. There's a false distinction abroad. It's lurking in the night uh, that is out there that it will find you and try like and tell you— the feared That's exactly right, that it will either try and find you—that it, it will try and find you in the night— uh, and like a terrifying monster uh, persuade you that uh, that we, the Democratic Party, can either focus on those voters, again, the white working class that I defined uh, a minute ago, or can focus on the emerging uh, demographic uh, potential makings of a demographic majority, an actual majority in the recent in the presidential election 2016 that uh, are uh, communities of color and women uh, as well, you know, and, and, and college educated women. This is not the – and I want to remind everyone here, the Obama coalition, as it is sometimes called, was all of those things, including those white working class voters. That was who won 2008. That was who won 2012. Uh, It was all of those people, including the white working class voters, which again is a cultural distinction that is as relevant as um, being, for example, a Latinx voter in Arizona. Right there's a specific way that that if you're going to approach running for governor of Arizona, you would speak to the Latinx community. You would engage with them in a very particular way. You'd want to do it authentically. You'd want to do it respectfully. That is a constituency-based approach. That is um, that is absolutely vital to winning that particular uh, to winning that particular governorship. If you wanted to win the presidency of the United States, the so-called white working class needs to be approached in a specific way with an understanding that it has cultural expectations. That uh, also will have to be addressed, authentic, you know, authentically and respectfully. Uh, to the extent that Klein is calling for that, I think it was a really, I think it was very reasonable. The problem is it indulges a little bit. You know, there's a there's a segment in it, and I, I want to focus on this because it, it demonstrates how even a, a good idea can go a little off the rails here. Uh, there's a segment where he talks about the need to, you know, speak plainly and truthfully to white working class voters. Uh, you know, reminding, you know, letting them know that this, you know, you, it, the, you know, the days when you could get a job without a high, without a college education when, with just a high school education are gone. Uh, and you hear that from Democrats a lot. And I can't shake the feeling that so many of us want, think we can recreate the scene from primary colors where Travolta as Clinton inspires his staff by standing in front of a union hall and saying, you know, the, you know, I, you know, I wish I, you know, and telling them, giving them the hard truth that, you know, he can't keep their jobs. Uh, that the world is changing, that they could be globalized, that any, their jobs could be shipped off you know, with the push of a button, but that he would go to bed every day thinking about them and wake up every morning fighting for them and all the other stuff. All of which, you know, is a pretty good, a, it was a pretty solid Clinton impersonation. B, it was pretty much in line with his rhetoric and C is not a disrespectful way of talking about, uh, of talking to a community in that way. It's, you know, I mean, it's, you know, it's be, starting from a truthful position is not wrong. But it's absurdly reductive because presidents, going back to Nixon, have been t- in states of the union and in campaign speeches have been talking about the changing world of the have been talking about the, manufacturing and how it is how everyone has to get an education now. This is we're now rounding forty years of this of that kind of rhetoric. Although from a, although it being a point of emphasis within the Democratic Party, it was really Clinton who was the first one to make it a big important point. Uh, so the idea that we could go back yet again to these communities and say, listen, y'all have to get an education and that, that will somehow be a home truth that will stun or appeal to them, uh, is, is reductive. You know, I think these are communities that have seen that with reality, what we need to do is to go back and say, this is now your path to success because we told them you can't do what you used to do. And the path to success that we offered, you know, go out and get an education in many cases was not the path to success. Uh, and then one more point on this. Uh, this is a canard that we really need to be careful of as Democrats. He suggests, you know, we need to go into the, you know, he writes, we need to go into these communities, uh, you know, white working class voters and, and make a, you know, tell them that immigration helps the economy. Do not do that, please. I fairly implore you. I have seen this try. If you are, you know, a candidate, if you are an activist, I have seen this tried and I have seen it fail on both sides of the Atlantic. You cannot go into people who have lost a sense of what it takes to succeed in this country and tell them that they are wrong, that you are that you have the right data about immigration, you are smarter than they are, and that you are right and immigration is actually good. This doesn't mean you have to stipulate to the idea that immigration is bad, but if you go in and tell them actually you know what you're wrong and immigration is a really good thing and I've got the data to prove it, they will shut you down immediately and you will they will never listen to another thing that you said. You will lose the right to be heard. Right. So this is a good example of how – so here we have a couple of pieces – well, well I mean, just, just for...
1: to, to, to kind of follow up on one of the mm-hmm. things you were just saying in terms of uh, the John Travolta imitating Bill Clinton, this goes back to some of the cult of personality issues. Bill Clinton could get away with going into those union halls and going into those places and talking about that because of the way he sounded and the way he looked and the language that he used. Because anybody who's ever met Bill Clinton, and I had the privilege of working for him briefly, immediately recognizes that part of his appeal is that were he not uh, haven't. Have you know, been born with a once in a generation mind, essentially, and gotten lucky and had a very supportive mother and gotten to go to good schools and gotten the Rhodes scholarship and gotten to Yale, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You could see him being perfectly happy sitting on a dilapidated porch in Arkansas, drinking hooch and barbecuing. And there is a point of, and I hate to use this term because it's overused and overused improperly. There's an aspect of authenticity when that message comes from someone like him versus when it comes from Mitt Romney, or Barack Obama,
0: or Hillary Clinton. Sure. No, that's right. So mes- yeah, messenger matters as much as message messenger matters as-
1: incredibly much. Yeah. And you know, going back to sort of the definition of the white working class, uh, everybody should read J.D. Vance's book, uh, Hillbilly Elegy. Um, but sort of the line of demarcation that in your mind, you should be thinking of about does this community count? Does this person count what it is? Sort of in, in the way I've been thinking about it. And again, living in Manhattan, I am certainly not white working class, but the way I've sort of been thinking about it is you need to think about, does this person fear cultural displacement? And if they do, they fit into that cultural category that Frank just explained. And if they fit into that cultural category that Frank just explained, how do you talk to them? What is the messenger? What is the message? And currently the Democrats have neither.
0: Yeah, that's that's a, that's a fair summation. I, I would say, uh, if you do, I'm going to modify Ellie's recommendation of uh, reading Vance's book. Uh, I, I, let me just say this: if you do choose to read Vance's book, as I did, I also encourage you to read White Trash by Nancy Eisenberg. Uh I would not Absolutely. encourage. It's, yeah, it's, there you go. So I would I would encourage you to temper the one with the other. Uh, so what are we going to do? What are we to do about this? Democratic Party of ours. Frank, I dare say,
1: I dare say, what the fuck are we going to? What do? What the
0: right? fuck are we going to do, Ellie? <laughs> fortunately, fortunately, uh, better heads than ours have been uh, at work on this problem, and they have a radical solution uh, from which Silicon is, Valley, no less. Si- from silicon, from, Sil- from out You're of Silicon to, Valley, they're going and, to disrupt uh, it. Yes, uh, Ellie, tell us about the di- the coming disruption of everything we know in progressive politics.
1: <laughs> the coming disruption comes to us from no other, no one else than Mark Pincus, he who gave us Farmville and Reid Hoffman, who gave us LinkedIn, which I wish I understood because apparently anybody who understands it gets a new job and makes a gazillion dollars, but they have decided to start a new thing called win the future. And if that sounds familiar to people, it should, because in 2011, Barack Obama's State of the Union address, that was sort of the theme, win the future, which led to what I would consider proper ribbing from the other side that the initials were WTF and the question that the Republicans then pose is like "Win the future, what the fuck, like, what are you doing about it? So to re to rebrand again, branding as opposed to substance, something else as WTF win the future is sort of bizarre. And these gentlemen, both of whom seem very intelligent and pleasant, they've decided to start a new movement and force within the democratic party, which can act like its own virtual party. If those aren't making you all, you know, hot and bothered beneath the collar, then you are not someone who invested in tech stocks in the early nineties. And that's where we're right now. So this is what's happening.
0: Yeah, there's a movement. So um, uh, when the future is meant to be a kind of crowdsourcing of ideas for, uh, the platform of a new uh, centrist party, uh, I, I, it, I mean, that I suspect, look, this is a political platform that's going to be assembled via Twitter. And I think you
1: need to wait a beat after dropping something like that.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's that's what's going to happen. It's it's a political platform that is going to be assembled via Twitter. That's pretty much what we need to know about this. Now, all of that said, I, am a, I actually am for this, if only because out of endeavors of this kind, it's not entirely impossible that something interesting might come. Uh, the center needs to Wait, define something its.
1: interesting may come. Is that sort of like you throw monkeys into a room with a typewriter? They will create Julius Caesar.
0: Oh, you've been on Twitter. I see. <laughs> uh, no, it's, I mean, this is like, except without the Caesar. Uh, I mean, it's the center needs to define itself. I think there is something potentially, um, hard, There's potential, Something potentially healthy about a, an outside force articulating a reasonably, po- a potentially popular set of viewpoints that a party, or a party apparatus, or a political movement could then use to kind of could, could then use as a starting point for its own self-definition. Right, like the problem that we have suffered from, and and as a party is. How do you begin to define what you are? I mean, it's such an, such an, an interesting, and we can talk about that. We can, we will, I, you know, I hope come up with various ways of answering that in coming episodes. Well, uh, car-
1: currently, Win the Future. Uh, so what they're going to do is essentially put uh, positions that people have suggested. They're going to put those up to a poll online. And mm-hmm. to start, currently, the group is querying supporters on two campaigns. One, whether or not they believe engineering degrees should be free to all Americans. And two, if they oppose lawmakers who don't call for Trump's immediate impeachment, and those mm-hmm. of you who have been listening to this podcast should recognize that Frank and I have significant issues with one of those two questions.
0: Yes, we despise engineers. <laughs> Isn't our <Martin laughs> is history's greatest monster? Uh, you know, you know, we are against tunnels. We're against trains. We're against airships. Uh, you know, give me a horse or uh, give me death.
1: Well, who, what's the myth? Uh, Casey Jones, right? Didn't he he uh, he broke through yeah. the uh the he he raced the the steam engine and won through the mountain or whatever. That's it is. exactly right. We're also yeah. fans of, of Casey uh,
0: Jones. Of, we're also fans of Casey Jones and John Henry uh, and Anton Sokonov, two men who worked <laughs> themselves to death with tools uh, rather than be outdone by a machine. Uh, yes, that's the the official position is that we are against technology. Now we're I mean look. Again, this is a this is a platform that's going to be assembled via Twitter. I think as a way of kind of coming up with potentially a, a at least a public expression of again a very tech centric, uh, but you know a very tech heavy, but a way a public expression of a kind of centrist politics. I think it has utility, if only as some as only for something for the de- for a for the Democratic Party more broadly to engage with and begin to define itself, maybe even against. Uh, but it's got, but it is a potential starting point for a conversation that the party needs to have, and it needs to have to a certain degree in public, uh, that is just not happening right now.
1: Okay. So in that part, sen- so in that part, sense,
0: I think in that sense, I'm, I think some good may come of it.
1: Right. So par- part of the trouble, I think, is who who is doing it. Dan uh, Dresner, who's a professor at um, at Tufts, and writes a phenomenal column in uh, the Washington Post, and is wonderful on Twitter. Everybody should follow him.
0: Also, evalu also evaluated my senior uh, my my bachelor's thesis.
1: Hey, there you go, guys.
0: Yeah, yeah. He said it could have. Yeah, he, he was very kind about it, but he said it could have been longer by a third, which was dead wrong. It could have been. Or he, he said it could have been shorter by a third, which is wrong. It could have been shorter by half.
1: <laughs> he recently wrote a book called uh, "The Ideas Industries uh, Industry," which I haven't read, but I've heard him in multiple interviews talking about it. But the point I want to I, I want to raise in that is. Uh, In his column about this uh, win the future party, he brings up the point that uh, there's some polling that demonstrates that Silicon Valley elites were less likely to view political conflict as an entrenched problem so much as a piece of faulty code that needed to be hacked. And if that smacks of alt-centrism to you, it should. Ding, ding, ding. Quote, compared to the public, more than three times as many founders of tech companies believe that there's, quote, No inherent conflict between major groups in society, workers versus corporations, citizens versus government, or America versus other nations. So that is part of the problem with this group. It's not necessarily what they're trying to do or how they want to do it. It's who is bringing, again, we keep talking about message and messenger, and this is the wrong messenger with partially the wrong message. It could be used for good, but I am skeptical at best.
0: Yeah, that's fair. I'm, as I say, I'm a little more bullish about something good coming out of it. Although, uh, maybe, in fact, almost certainly not the the good that is uh, that is originally intended. But we, we shall see. Uh, but all of this stuff is an effort to kind of figure out, and and what I the hope Democrats helps, yeah. stand for. Yeah, what the Democrats stand for, and and I think we need to start thinking about uh, what are the actual honest to god fault lines on the left, because you know Bernie writes something and then Penn writes something and. And you know, again, you know, daily firefights in the most important piece of territory in the world, which is of course Twitter. Uh, you know, all you know, all between the left and the kind of center, and and you know what we're trying to figure out. So, what are the where are the places that we actually have honest to god like genuine faults between us? Well, uh, again, I, but let,
1: let's just you know mm-hmm. assure people that we're talking about people who are left of center.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. So within the, yeah, exactly so within the left, we are not engaging with. There's no difference between the parties. There are huge differences between the parties. Now, what we mean is. If you're, left of, if you're to the left of center from kind of center left to far left, where are the actual like serious fault lines within the Democratic Party?
1: If you identify and vote regularly with the Democratic Party.
0: Sure. Or if, yeah, exactly. Or if you are, but you know, if you're, yeah, if you're, if you're a a likely democratic voter or a historically Democrat voter, what are the, like, where are the differences? What are the differences that we're going to have to get our heads around as we begin building a, a policy platform and be a narrative, a kind of understanding of the world and of the country. But again,
1: um, part so, of the, part of the thing that we were just talking about earlier is that this also moves district to district, state to state. Sure. And there of course. needs, and there needs to be space built into that. But going back to, I'll let Frank, uh, Introduce this a bit more
0: yeah, so yeah, so what are the like again? Where are their actual fault lines versus where are we you know? I mean simply pursuing essentially vendettas against different parts of the same like you again, you know the sort of internecine warfare, that the that the Democratic Party is so good at Um, Free trade is actually one like there's so to start with one that is an actual existing Fault line within the Democratic Party. There is a real debate about the utility of free trade Uh, And again, we're not going to make recommendations or solve any of this on this podcast. God, I wish that we could. Um, But it's so but that we can just identify this as like an an area of policy that is a legit dispute within the Democratic Party is what is the utility and structure of free trade. Uh, There's an emerging there is an emerging fault line on health care. Uh, as a party, we are—you know—we are right now benefiting from that contrast. This is one of those cases where contrast really does work in our favor. We are the party that is not trying to take healthcare away from people. It's a good position to be in, and I think we should ride it, uh, or you know, stay or stick with it. There is an emerging fault line between people who want to uh, preserve the, uh, uh, the the ACA, people who are in favor of, of shoring up Obamacare and making it work that way, and supporters of single payer. Uh, which is a growing constituency within the democratic party, unless we are able to articulate some good ACA fixes and, or begin to define single payer that could actually become in a better way. Cause right now a plurality of Americans support single payer, there's a real question about the extent to which they understand what that would look like. Uh, there's, you know, that this could, Im- right now we're, we're pretty much together on healthcare, but only as a matter of contrast, this could emerge into a genuine fault line on the left.
1: Right. I would, the- I would, I would posit that uh, if, Trump care fails uh, in the next few weeks in the Senate, and Democrats do well in 2018. Uh, at least hold where they're at, if not win. I would posit that by 2024, we're looking at some sort of single payer for the country.
0: Yeah, sure. And we need to get out. And and you know, this is a tactical question, but the party, but we need to get out now, defining and talking about what single payer would be, uh, because if we don't, then the Republicans will define it for us.
1: It's not some um, halcyon, you know, uh, uh, panem there are all kinds of problems with single payer it is good in the fact that if you have tonsillitis your kid's going to still be able to go to college it is bad in terms of choices and innovation and other sorts of things
0: sure and, i mean then, yeah there's, and there's at this point
1: yeah. the party has not described any of this because the party as a whole is not on board with the concept of single payer
0: Sure. There's a, again, there's a real divide there. And again, yeah, it's, it's, there are things it does well, there are things that it doesn't do well. Uh, what it doesn't do is produce uh, bankruptcies as if that was its job. Uh, so in that sense, it has a real advantage. Uh, so there's a small fault line on how we handle things like student loans and education more broadly. Uh, that one could get larger, uh, how we handle uh, the, the way to reduce the cost of college education for, for students and their families. Uh, is, you know, we're all pretty much on board with that, pretty much on board with, you know, making, uh, with the idea that government has a role to play in making college more affordable. Uh, differences there's in the, also,
1: execution there's, of right, that, right. right, there's also a question care. of college in general or just sort of some sort of professional training college. Yeah, like yeah there, higher There's ed lots of questions exactly. about
0: that. Yeah, higher ed in a broader way. But again, most of this stuff. Most of those differences are pretty marginal ones. Uh, there is a difference on how we handle there could be a difference in how we handle student loans between you know kind of one one side of the party and another uh, there could definitely be a difference on how we handle college whether it, you know we whether we help families pay for it through tax breaks or whether we take a larger government role in something a little bit more like Ireland where you know essentially if you qualify for a university you can go and the government will pay for it uh, that could get larger uh, and I see this how we handle student loans and how we handle paying for edu- for higher education, as a, you know, as a, as a potentially massive fault line that the democratic party could just stumble right onto and then be killed in the ensuing earthquake. Well,
1: there, there's a good reason for that because some of that goes back to some of the base argument that we're having with is the concept of does the American dream of you work hard, you play by the rules, you can get ahead. Does that still exist?
0: Sure. And we're going to, and that's, and, and, education, that, and that, that's and education
1: plays into that huge.
0: Yeah. Ultimately problem. this is, this is exactly right. So, and this, this is what this stuff all boils down to. Uh, there's a potentially large dispute and this, sorry, this, you know, on the sort of the other potential fault lines, which we'll just go through pretty quickly as we see them. Uh, there's a potentially large dispute on national security and America's place in the world as, you know, I mean, you've got a sense that Ellie and I come from a national security community. Uh, I mean, this is something we could talk about, you know, forever. Uh, there is a pretty serious dis- there's a pretty serious discrepancy right now. We can be unified as we were under the Bush years by saying, well, whatever we're doing, we don't want to do what those guys are doing right now. We whatever Trump is doing, the Democratic Party opposes it in the world uh, since he you know, routinely seems to screw up. Uh, that's a fine position now. We so we have bought some time to figure out where the Democratic Party is on national security. Uh, That's a potentially major fault line But
1: within the party itself there is you know, the far left is a group that doesn't think evil exists and or they They actually buy into Trump's America first. We shouldn't be anywhere else We shouldn't be doing anything for anyone else until we do it here first Which in its own way is a defensible position and then there's the other side, you know, the far right of the left folks, uh, more in our community of the, you know, the Truman project community who believe that there's gotta be a big toolbox and you got to use all the tools and some of those tools involve killing people.
0: Yeah. But there is a, that America, the world is a better place and America engages and engages in all sorts of different ways, ideally with you know diplomacy and democracy, uh, you know, development and, and development. Yeah. And development (laughs) and development. No, I mean, seriously, that's, I mean, that's really, really important. And then that's the big one. uh, Yeah, that's exactly right. And that we reserve the, the right to, to use, you know, defense, to use kinetic approaches when necessary. So that's, that is without Trump, as long as Trump is around, we're going to be able to paper over these distinctions. But when they go away, when he goes away, Uh, This is This could burst out into a major problem within the left. A couple of other places where there may or may not be, you know, we we talk interestingly in discussions about returning to the center. We talk a lot of immigration often comes up. I actually think that there is a kind of this is not necessarily a huge fault line within the left. Uh, as there is a kind of fairly broad consensus, um, that, you know, this, I mean, we're not, you know, we're certainly not taking the undocumented population and deporting families. Like that's just not something that we're for. And again, we can define ourselves against Trump pretty well. Uh, we are broad you know, we are, you know, there, there's a sense that the system has not functioned well. Uh, in terms of tracking uh, people who've come into this country, creating a way for them to get out of being undocumented and in the shadows into the you know into the system, but also making a way for that to happen that is not so attractive that it is better to that it's you know we want to push people toward legal immigration i think is the point that we're talking about here like finding a way to and and that's that there are a bunch of different ways that that become that is a very sensitive issue people's lives are at stake it needs to be taken seriously and i don't want to trivialize it i think within the progressive space there are distinctions and there are important distinctions it is not an issue that i think is likely to fracture the left in the way that you know that you know free trade well, to the certain, way
1: that it's fractured uh, the right
0: and the way that it the way that it's fractured the right There's one other area uh, that I think is kind of an emerging uh, fault line distinction within the party that we're going to have to figure out. It's a fairly technocratic one, but Ellie brought it up before we were recording. And I want to bring it up because I think it's, it's a small point of policy that is illustrative of a potential worldview difference. And that is there's a bunch of private money that is on the sidelines uh, while there are things that need to be paid for in this country that are not being paid for. And there's a couple of ways to go about putting that money to work. Uh, right. So, let me, if, let me like, Tell us about the money on the sidelines. Yeah. Let me give you some
1: context. So, I mean, that there's, you know, the one way to do it where you start taxing things at 70%, like they was in the Eisenhower era, but that's not necessarily a good way to go, go about doing it because I think left, right and center, everybody agrees that probably the least efficient use of money is to give it to the government. But uh, to give a little perspective on how much money, uh, so aside from the you know the Michael Bloomberg's, the Warren Buffett's, the Bill Gateses, the Jeff Bezoses out there, who you know just though that group alone is probably I don't know 180 billion dollars, probably closer to 200 billion if not more. Uh, there are uh, five uh, tech companies: Apple, Microsoft, Google, Cisco, and Oracle, who as of uh, late 2015 we're sitting on 504 billion, that's with a B, billion dollars. And obviously a a good deal of this is not in the United States. And we we will talk about that in a second, because that's part of the very important uh, policy distinction that we're talking about. But to give you a perspective on what the 504 billion represents, it is 30% of the $1.7 trillion in cash or cash equivalents held by non-financial United States companies. It's just an obscene amount of money that is just sitting on the sidelines. And this is something, uh, if you want to see an interesting conversation of it, a few years ago, um, President Obama was facing a potential government shutdown, and he had to agree to some terms on some tax, on on, uh, extending the Bush tax cuts, I believe was the actual, the the, the primary aspect of it. He was taking a lot of flack from the left. So he brought Bill Clinton to the White House on a Friday afternoon they had a meeting and they took pictures and then they decided to go out to the press corps late on a Friday afternoon, which is like the last thing the press corps wants. And uh, President Obama gave his upfront speech, said he was very happy President Clinton was there, gave him some good advice, blah, 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 And then President Obama said, I got to go. Michelle's expecting me. And he left the podium for President Clinton for the better part of an hour and a half, better part of an hour and a half. And uh, in that time period, President Clinton, as a non-sitting world leader, gave a tour de force of sort of where his mind was at. And one of the specific issues that he brought up was all this cash sitting on the sidelines. So to give you an example of where some of this cash could go, again, just to give you some relative terms so you can understand how much money we're talking about. Right now, one of the biggest debates going on in the New York, greater New York area, is the need to dig another tunnel beneath the Hudson River connecting New Jersey and New York. Uh, one of the reasons this is so important right now is that uh, Hurricane Sandy created a whole bunch of problems among, in the two tunnels that currently exist. And if one of them goes down, it does you know unbelievably horrible things to the entire Northeast Corridor. But in the meantime, uh, 10 years ago, Chris Christie and his short-fingered, fat, disgusting human being perspective decided to shut down a a project that was going to dig another tunnel because he didn't want to spend tax money that way which honestly i mean that's what tax money should be used for these massive projects but to give you an example this gateway project which is this new tunnel that will be dug is approximately 24 billion dollars mike bloomberg could write a check for that tomorrow and it would be taken care of it would be the mike bloomberg tunnel underneath the hudson hudson river the same way there's the holland tunnel and the lincoln tunnel would be the bloomberg tunnel And then he could just turn around and say, I want 10% of the tolls to come back to my foundation from now through eternity. But going back to where Frank started this off, what are our policies around all of this money? I mean, billions and billions, hundreds of billions of dollars that are just sitting there
0: not being used. And the question, and then, and again, there are infrastructure projects that need to be built there. I mean, there's all kinds of use for this stuff. And and the left has had a shot, and I say the left, mean the kind of this is really a center-left thing, has really had a shot at getting some of that money into into you know invested in this stuff uh, through public-private partnerships. That's been a big uh, there was a big thing with New Labour in the UK. That was a big uh, it was a big focus for the Obama administration. Even the Bushies did some of that, although it was mainly privatized. Uh, well, there, and, there
1: were a few uh, big significant uh, international public public-private. Partnerships uh, over the course of the Bush and Obama years. I'm thinking specifically there was a, uh, the Skyway in Chicago was sold to an Australian bank. If memory yeah. serves, sure. Most of the parking meters in Chicago were sold to Morgan Stanley, I think. The rest stops on the New Jersey Turnpike were sold to a Carlisle Group, a big private equity fund. And yeah.
0: there, sure.
1: there's money to be made here for people.
0: Sure, and and this is one the of the incentives are right. And this is one of the key distinctions. So you know there are. This is, and this, this, I think is this, the reason that we came into this is that it illustrates a good worldview here, which is there is in theory and, and there has been historically in practice. There's some ways the public private partnerships have worked quite well. There's some areas where they've really, uh, you know, especially some of the privately financed hospitals in the UK, uh, there's some, you know, and then the way that money and the effect that money has had on education, um, in the U S is looked at with particular skepticism in some quarters and justifiably so, uh, there is this question of the like this again is a a real question for the Democratic Party, and we don't have to have one defined answer for this, but it, it's a fault line that we're going to deal with sooner or later. Which is, we are almost it's like we are to a certain degree back in the Gilded Age, where most of the actual like currency, you know, so much of the money, there are these giant corporate and private fortunes, while the public say, while the public public infrastructure is crumbling. That money is going to have to be moved out of uh, private fortunes, out of corporate fortunes, out of places where it does nothing but enrich a small gla- a small class of investors toward a spot where there is public infrastructure to be had. Like That is a good, solid, broadly lefty position. Uh, how you do that, whether you do it through public-private partnership or whether you do it through taxation, is actually a pretty big worldview choice that the left is going to have to make um, I'm not saying that we need to resolve that in order to go into the election in 2018, but this is one of the problems that I could see coming down the, coming down the pike for us as a party. Uh, and, and that's a, I mean, it's a, it's a genuine dispute and a genuine fault line. So we will come to some sort of, you know, so we'll muddle our way through that probably as a party for a while. But before we, uh, before we wrap this up, uh, there's sort of one more kind of fault line and this is a political tactical one. Uh, and it fortunately it has a a, a shelf life, uh, but nonetheless it's an important one that is a dispute, a subject of dispute within the left, which is what to do about how to handle ourselves in a world uh, that features President Donald Trump.
1: Yeah, how do we deal with a world in which Donald Trump is the president, and he will remain the president, uh, likely at least through the end of the term, potentially through 2024. And the Democratic Party, as we discussed up front, where the party currently their messaging is, we're not him, is not going to work. And this is sort of the pie in the sky. Everything is going to be okay because Trump is going to get impeached. This is where that that kind of bullshit concept comes from. And it all kind of leads back to this idea, essentially on what he campaigned on. He campaigned on America First, that all these people... Again, sort of this white working class, which we have defined as people who are uh, scared of cultural displacement, that you matter. I'm going to take care of you, whether it's coal miners or steel workers, whatever it might be. This all has to go. This all goes back to the American deal, which we referenced earlier, has been broken. This concept of you work hard, you play by the rules, you should be able to get ahead. You should be able to get it. A, You should be able to afford a house. You should be able to have health care coverage. You should be able to send a child or two through college. You should be able to retire reasonably uh, comfortably. You should be able to buy your grandkids clothing and maybe pass on a little bit of money to them, whatever it might be. It is broken and it has been broken for quite some time. And unless and until the Democratic Party figures out a way to say that the deal is broken, which at this point they have not said, until they're willing and able to say that it is broken and come up with solutions that are understandable, comprehensible, and actionable, Democrats are going to continue to lose.
0: Yeah. this is America is meant to be a place where you work hard, you play by the rules, and you win, as you defined it, Ellie, which I think is a great definition. Uh, for, uh, for many communities in this country, America is a place where you can work hard, you can play by the rules, and you can lose. You can lose everything. Uh, That was laid particularly bare in 2008 with the Great Recession, but it has continued. Uh, We had eight years of, uh, of, of government under President Obama. Both of us could find good things to say about that period. Both of us could find bad things to say about that period, but we came out of that period with communities of all kinds. Uh, where that is still the, where that is still the rule. I mean, that, that you work hard to play by the rules and you lose, and the rules can be changed against you, the rules can be stacked against you. Communities of color have felt this for a very long time. It's been the dominant feature of their story in America. Uh, but this is true of the, of what is now, this is being felt, uh, and, in, and, and in many areas, absolutely true, uh, by what is uh, by what's called the white working class. Uh, and until and and we went to uh, that community, particularly the white working class, but to all communities, uh, in a in a country where you can work hard, play by the rules, and still unfortunately lose. And we told them that America is already great, uh, and we've got to get past that as a party if we expect to be taken seriously.
1: Yeah, uh, that's exactly what we need to do, and get off the bullshit branding of new Coke. Uh, <laughs> that, is <laughs> that is our show for the week. It'll be around forever. That is our show for the week. Thanks for joining us. Please be sure to subscribe and rate us on iTunes and follow us on Twitter at, at Taking ship and that's ship with a P as in pulmonology. We're going to release another episode early next week featuring our good friend and Truman, fellow Truman Project member, Xander Meiss, a.k.a. the smartest person we know, to, dis- to discuss the Supreme Court and all kinds of other great things. Uh, You should definitely check us out again early next week. Please subscribe and you'll get it automatically. It'll be an episode that you definitely want to check out. With that, Frank, where are we headed this week?
0: We're headed for Hamburg, uh, in Germany, where we see a business opportunity. Uh, president Trump is visiting that city for a gathering of the G20. I'm sure they'll be happy to see him. It's an August occasion, to be sure, but there's uh, one problem: the president's staff apparently didn't book a place uh, for the president and the delegation to stay. And I mean, how could they have? The event was—it was a rather last-minute affair. Uh, it was announced in February of 2016 and now uh, local Hamburg officials have had to step in to secure uh, the president a place to stay. I I wish I could say with any confidence that this will be the last time the Germans have to bail out the flailing government of the United States, Uh, but nothing is signed until it's signed, and we have uh, our eye, we here have our eye on the main chance. Uh, So taking ship is headed to Hamburg to open a hotel that caters exclusively to unprepared travelers, which we will call the Hamburger Helper, part of the same conglomerate uh, that also includes our Venetian street food stand, the Hot Doge, uh, both of which are proud members of our growing empire of uh, businesses uh, based on dubious meats. Uh, Franchise inquiries welcome. Friends, we take ship now for Hamburg.
1: Take care, everybody.